0: Hello everybody. My guest today is Dr. Riaz Motara. Dr. Motara is one of the smartest people I have ever had the privilege of speaking to. Not because he's a doctor, that's pretty obvious, but his insights and wisdom into the human body and life and healing is beyond what I've ever, ever, ever experienced. He is a cardiologist by trade. And also practices as a functional medicine practitioner. He's actually one of the first people if not the first to to practice functional medicine Um, and he combines that with his cardiology practice which obviously takes a different look at what causes disease and illness and how we can cure it through prevention rather than treatment of symptoms and also how we can treat it by looking at the function and the core reason. He takes a look at the, the patient's environment, um, you know, their diet, their lifestyle, all of those things. Um, and in this episode, we, we dig into that, but we also dig into coronavirus and COVID-19. Um, he gives us his perspective on how to, to treat it and how to go about it as a country. And we just dig into a whole lot of awesome, awesome things. So without further ado, enjoy this episode. It's definitely one of my favorites. Just listen.
1: The average person on a Western diet today consumes roughly 80 kilograms of sugar per year. Doc, one of the things I'd love
0: to, to ask you is how you became who you are and what is the backstory of Doc Matara?
1: So I did medicine at uh, WITS, qualified at WITS in uh, 1993 and then did my specialization at uh, Baragwanath Hospital, spent most of my time there uh, super specialized to become a cardiologist Uh, and then I've been in practice now for almost 20 years but I think uh, quite early on uh, within two years of going into practice, um, you know, I was unhappy being a doctor. I just felt that uh, I called it the revolving door theory. You know, patients would come in, they would have had a heart attack, I treated them, and they would be a week, back a week later saying they're feeling tired, they can't lose weight, uh, and I would adjust their medication, give them some advice, and they'd be back a month later and with similar symptoms. Um, so I had very little job satisfaction after about two years being a cardiologist. It was great. We treated patients. We got them better, put in stents into their heart. But I just felt that something was missing, you know, um, and then started researching and trying to understand that we really studied as organ specialists. OK, so we concentrated on the heart or the brain or the kidney, and we didn't really understand the person or the human being as a whole, you know. And uh, so I started doing a lot of research at the time, uh, met one of my colleagues that was an endocrinologist, and we had a few discussions uh, and I started researching this whole field of functional medicine that really looks at a systems approach to understanding why we get ill in the first place and looking at the person as a whole. And uh, one thing led to another, and I self-taught myself. A lot of it was basic science and basic human physiology that we had already studied, but it was looking at at a person as a whole, and understanding the environment, understanding what uh, their emotional traumas were, what they ate and didn't eat, and trying to get to understanding their why. Why did they get ill in the first place? You know, and uh, uh, that started, you know, in, in the beginning as an as a journey and uh, over the years um, has, has given me the opportunity to interact with my patients in a very different way. You know, so that now when I do a consultation with a patient, I actually enjoy doing a consultation.
0: Is that because every consultation will bring something different to the table?
1: Absolutely. So I, I think it's how you start the conversation with somebody in the beginning, you know that um, if you start the conversation from a point of view of what gift am I sharing with this person today, rather than what's wrong with them and how much am I going to earn out of this consultation uh, and start it off with a completely, uh, from a completely different paradigm. It changes the nature of the conversation with the patient and most people actually tell you what's wrong with them uh, in that conversation. You know, it's actually not that difficult to figure out what has caused uh, them feeling unwell.
0: I'm sure a, a big part of of treating someone is how you allow them to feel, because coming to, especially someone that's a specialist in something like cardiology, there's always a, an anxiety attached to that consultation. So if you start that with a, about the person, rather about let's quickly try and Give you the medication or find what's wrong. It allows the person on this side of the table to feel more comfortable.: mm.
1: Absolutely, Nick. So you know most of us as doctors, um, because we constrain for time and we really just want to get the patient in and outright a prescription, um, we sometimes forget that uh, the patient is actually there because something they, they, they have you know, something's not right in their environment, something's not right in their home and they just really need somebody to allay their fears that they're actually not going to die, as an example. So we often, as doctors, and you know, this is a common thing that happens, is that we interrupt patients when they're talking. So um, the last 20 years has taught me to be try and be a good listener, and to read between the lines, and, and most patients will actually volunteer the information if you give them the opportunity uh, to, to voice all their feelings and their concerns uh, about what's bothering them right now.
0: That that process of, of listening, is that intuitive based or is that something that gets taught in the medical degree?
1: I don't think it really gets taught. I think over years of experience, you learn to develop a strong sense of intuition. I think we all have a sense of intuition. Uh, it's how you exercise uh, that intuition and, and how or that process, uh, to, and, and listening is an important component of building a stronger intuition.
0: Where in in the medical field today and in treating patients with such a big or vast selection, if I can call it that, of chronic diseases, where is the place for functional medicine and when? where is the place for conventional medicine?
1: So look, I think uh, all conventional medicine is actually functional medicine. I think it's just the way we approach uh, the problem. So uh, most of us were trained to look at a sign-symptom complex um, and then try and make sense of those signs and those symptoms into what it could potentially be, uh, and then to issue a prescription uh, to try and ease those symptoms. Now, we know that you know, in, in medication will work for many patients. Okay? But the question is always, is what has caused the problem? So if we're going to aim at potentially a cure and, and, and dealing with the real emotional issues at hand behind why people get ill, then I think we've, we've, we've missed a big opportunity to make people better. Uh, I'm a strong believer that our bodies have the ability to heal themselves if we understand our why. So 50% of any cure is having insight into what caused the problem. The remaining 50% is how you're going to tackle uh, the problem and how, you, how, how you're how you going to diagnose it perhaps maybe and, and, and how you're going to manage it going forward. And that management requires then a lot more of a holistic approach uh, to getting people better rather than just the prescription.
0: The... Obviously, if someone comes to, to a doctor with a problem and then they have headaches and maybe the symptoms is just headaches and nausea or something, but the cause is something a lot deeper, mm-hmm. there's still room to give them some pain medication for the headaches just to, to let them function better for a while while you're trying to find the cause of the, of the problem.
1: Well, well, yes, but um, the way we need to understand medicine is that it is either a structural problem Or what we would call a functional problem or a combination of both that means that uh, if you've got a headache as you've said okay um, is it a brain tumor Uh, is it something wrong with your blood vessels in your head is it something wrong with the covering of uh, the brain Um, you know is it a function of your eyesight is there something structurally wrong sometimes you may be having a headache and there's actually nothing structurally wrong with your head uh, your blood pressure may be low your cortisol levels may be low uh, your sugar may be high or low so there's many your you know your eyesight could be uh, you may have cataract so there's many reasons to 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 of how we address the problem uh, we were largely trained to not consider the functional reasons but rather to look to find a function i mean a structural cause of the headache and then we would treat that but for me uh, that's good but it's also a disservice in the sense that we're not explaining to patients, um, as, you know, giving them the cause or getting to the point of the why they, you know, they have the headache in the first place. And often when you, when you manage patients a little bit more holistically uh, and you give people insights into why they have the headache, uh, you're able to treat it, cure it and prevent it from coming back.
0: My next question was the prevention part. So how important is, is the functional medicine in not only treating symptoms but also in preventing causes in the future?
1: So I think, I think perhaps maybe what we need to do, Nick, is maybe go back and ask the reason. So why do people get ill in the first place? You know, I mean, what, what causes us to, to be unwell or that creates, dis- creates the dis-ease uh, in our body? So, for me, the way I look at it is to say, well, you know, we see patients when they come to us with a sign or a symptom or signs and symptoms. Now, if you take it back a few steps right up to the beginning, and if you go back into the environment that people live in, so it's where you live, what type of, I mean, do you live in very cold environments, very hot environments, do you live in a polluted environment? Uh, what do we eat, or more importantly, what are we not getting in our food from a micronutrient perspective? What are the emotional traumas uh, that we experience? So, has somebody recently got divorced? Um, did he lose his job? You know, did he have financial problems? Did somebody die in the family? Then we look and say, well, you know, are there potential toxins or pollutants? Uh, in the work environment that we may be exposed to or in our food that may be contributing to us being unwell. And then lastly, are there any, have there been any recent acute or mainly or probably chronic infections that we are exposed to that then influences what happens to our genes? Okay, called, and th- this is called epigenetic phenomena, and we can talk about that uh, after this. Uh, and then we switch on little light switches in our DNA, called epigenetic phenomena, that then triggers uh, certain hormonal imbalances or drives inflammation, l- chronic inflammation in our body or autonomic dysfunction. That's an imbalance in our nervous system. And these three big components then create the symptoms and create the signs of the disease. So when you understand the continuum of how we get ill in the first place, it actually becomes quite easy to identify the step at, at, at which you, where you find the problem. So remember that everything in life is either cause uh, and effect or action and reaction. So all of these are just effects. The actual cause lies in our environment in terms of what we get exposed to, what emotions are attached to these events in our life and how we react to these Uh, environmental factors and emotions that then will influence what happens next.
0: The autoimmune and the epigenetic issues that that you see in your practice, has there been a rise in those over the past, say, 30, 20 years?
1: Yeah, so I think if you look at uh, post-World War II, the number of all chronic lifestyle diseases just continues to rise At astronomical figures, you know, I mean, cardiometabolic diseases, heart attacks, strokes, cancer, autoimmune diseases, depression, uh, anxiety, allergies. And then we really have to ask so, why is this so? You know, despite the fact that we have a very good modern medical system, okay, and with effective treatments in the vast majority of cases, why is it that the number of patients that we see With these chronic lifestyle diseases, just continues to grow and grow and grow. So, if you look in South Africa, for example, we have the highest rate of hypertension in the world, but we also have the worst control rate. We have an epidemic of obesity and childhood obesity, and we're going to get an app growing into an epidemic of childhood type 2 diabetes. Wow. So, um, you know, why is there such massive amounts of dementia and people would call Alzheimer's disease uh, in Western populations. you know? Uh, why is it that 20 years ago, uh, we never saw heart attacks in, in black patients in our country? Why is there an epidemic of, uh, of heart disease now from from, from a point of heart attacks and vascular disease uh, in our black population? What has changed? What is different, you know? So, for me, the idea is to go back to what we would call primordial prevention uh, and try and get right back to the root cause of what we get exposed to in our environment. Now, if you look at it after 1950, what has really changed uh, is, and there were a few things. One is the amount of sugar that we started uh, to consume. Um, You know, the average person prior to 1950 maybe consumed uh, maybe roughly two kilograms of sugar per, per year, mainly in the form of their fruit and their vegetables and honey and things like that. The average person on a Western diet today consumes roughly 80 kilograms of sugar per year. Wow. Okay, and our body needs to make sense of the sugar load. The second major issue that happened is that we changed our farming practices. Yes. So, um, you know, from mass-produced food... Uh, uh, you know, fruit and vegetables that are in cold storage, artificially ripened, irradiated, and so on. And the fruit and vegetables that we consume today has very little of the essential micronutrients that our body needs to to, to survive. And the third major problem is the type of fat that we are consuming today. So, again, um, you know, the amount of omega-6 fats which comes from seed oils vegetable oils like sunflower oil and canola oil and margarine are exceptionally high in omega-6 which is a pro-inflammatory fat it, it, it pushes up our cholesterol it causes the inflammation or the micro inflammation in our body omega-3 on the other hand um, has the opposite effect in terms of being anti-inflammatory so and part of this whole fat story was that um, we were told to eat low-fat or fat-free diets. Now, that didn't really make any difference in terms of changing uh, the, um, the number of patients that we have with chronic heart conditions and so on. So, for me, it's not necessarily that fat is bad for you, but the type of fat. You know, a cow shouldn't be really eating grain. It wasn't designed to eat grain. It was designed to eat grass. So if you look at who's got uh, the highest cholesterol levels in the world, it's not the Indians or the Jews or the Afrikaners, it's the Eskimos. Yet they have the lowest heart attack rate in the world. You know, I mean, they consume uh, whale fat, which, and the whales eat krill, okay, which is pure omega-3. Uh, they eat seal meat, and they eat fish. Okay, So uh, those types of fats are high in, omega 3 and will actually drop your cholesterol levels and has anti-inflammatory properties so so again we have to look at the reasons uh, as to why and then maybe you know people are faced with different types of stresses today uh, and more stress we are um, expected to conform um, we are stressed from the time we get up in the morning till the time we get go to bed at night we never have give our body a chance to actually rest, get enough sleep, and so on, and all these factors—it's uh, uh, never just a single factor. All these factors contribute to how uh, we feel, and also, you know, what will we, uh, what will we be affected by?
0: There's so many ways I can take this conversation out because what you've done now is you've opened up a lot of different angles, and all of it very relevant to to our health. One thing I would like to emphasize on is the importance of not only what we eat, but what we eat eats. Correct. As you said, the cow mm-hmm. shouldn't eat grain and and the corn and things they're eating. My fiance is a farmer. And she she actually produces for Woolworths, and one of the ways they check where the Woolworths quality has been reached is the sugar levels in the in the vegetables, such as tomatoes and and things. And one of the things I'd like to ask you is, has the sugar level in things like tomatoes and things also change compared to what they used to be before
1: nine. Yeah, that's very difficult uh, to say because you know, every batch of tomatoes will be different. So it's not necessarily that we, um, you know, that uh, fruit sugars and and sugars in vegetables uh, are necessarily bad for us. I think it's got to do with the sugar load that we get exposed to. Uh, When we are, are so for example, if you had a burger coke and a packet of chips okay Uh, it's the flour in the white bread it's the omega-6 in the grain fed meat Uh, it's the starch in the chips it's the sugar in the fizzy drink so we expose our body to a massive sugar load at once and our body again then has to react to this high sugar load so we overproduce insulin that comes from our pancreas and the insulin can only store so much sugar as something called glycogen within our fat cells and our liver and in our muscle cells and when there's an excess sugar load this excess insulin then takes the sugar and converts it into fat which is then stored centrally in our bodies Uh, these cells over time become more and more resistant then to the effect of the insulin and it's a vicious cycle. And because we overproduce uh, these high insulin levels and our pancreas is placed on in, under such massive pressure, uh, over time these cells die off in our pancreas, and we cannot then make these high levels of insulin anymore, and that's when we become diabetic. So that's just a very simplistic way of trying to uh, to explain uh, that process. So, Remember that if you took a plate of food, the meat is the protein, uh, the fat is within the meat and the oils that you would cook with, but everything else on your plate, from the salad to the vegetables to the starches, all become some form of sugar or sugar in your blood, and our body has to make sense of that. I think we also eat too much or too often, okay, that... um, no way in our history, if you go back thousands of years, people did not eat three times a day with two snacks in between. So we consume large amounts of calories uh, and the wrong types of calories from, from sugar and starch. And uh, that's what really contributes or one of the major reasons that contributes to us um, gaining weight uh, and then subsequently developing all the complications of gaining too much weight.
0: There's a, a stat that I read somewhere that says that the supermarkets on our almost 80% of the things on the shelves are processed and filled with simple carbohydrates and sugars and things. Is part of this reason for our epidemic in diseases in a way not our fault? It's what we've been presented and buying grass-fed meat and organic vegetables is quite a hard thing to do.
1: Uh, Absolutely. I mean, I think to, there's just too many people on the planet. Okay, so it's impossible to farm um, enough fruit and vegetables and grow food uh, for 7.7 billion people on the planet um, if it is not farmed the way that it is currently farmed. Our people, somebody would have to come up with a very innovative and unique way of growing healthy food, and, and therein lies a massive opportunity uh, for people to think about that. You know, so. Um, sugar, high omega-6, micronutrient deficient uh, fruit and vegetables uh, will definitely contribute to to what we're going to get affected by and our risk for developing certain diseases.
0: And these diseases that that you've mentioned as a direct result of these lifestyle and dietary choices we make coupled with lack of exercise, sorry, does cancer for part of that do we get cancer from these type of lifestyle choices
1: for sure so so i think all forms of chronic disease right whether it's um, uh, heart disease stroke cancer obesity um, autoimmune diseases um, allergies are all just a function of um, you know what we expose our bodies to now the nutritional side is just as i said earlier just one component or one element of what we're getting affected by. Uh, so although nutrition is crucially important, we must not forget uh, all the other environmental stresses that we are exposed to.
0: Why do we never see cancer in someone's heart?
1: So we do get cancer in the heart. Okay? I mean, there are tumors that, that, that patients uh, do develop in the heart, but these are rare uh, and uncommon. So, there, you know, I mean, I think for us, if you look at men and women, then, you know, breast cancer and in women and prostate cancer are common. Colon cancer is common because it's what we eat or what the state of our microbiome is or our, the flora or the bacteria in our gut is. But again, you know, the textbook of cancers may be this thick. Um, a lot depends on what we again expose ourselves to in our environment, and which light switches we switch on in our DNA uh, that we get exposed to. And it's not just what we get exposed to in this lifetime, it may also be what our ancestors were exposed to. So if a light switch for for breast cancer was switched on uh, in your great grandmother, for example, then that gets filtered down the generations and you may be at a higher risk than for developing breast cancer. So um, <clears throat> when I think we're only beginning to understand um, our gen- our genes and how uh, our genes relate to our environment. And I think this is the future of medicine where we will be able to um, get cures for all these
0: illnesses. The epigenetics. phenomena that you've that you've spoken about we we've started to look at that in terms of how you can influence the mind through changing your your genetics if you can call it that or switching on certain genes is it possible to switch them off or is it just possible to prevent not switching them on
1: i think you can switch them on on and off in fact as we sit here right now our genes are constantly in a state of flux. So let me go back a step and explain how this all works um, first. So we used to think uh, before the entire Human Genome Project that we have roughly 120,000 genes in our DNA and each of those genes would give us blue eyes and small ears and big toes and so on. But when they did the Human Genome Project they found that we had roughly 24,000 genes uh, in our body which is almost roughly the same number of genes as a fruit fly and a mouse and a banana. Okay. But the difference in humans is that each gene doesn't give you a particular physical effect. It can give you up to 2,000 possible effects. Okay. So if you unravel the gene, our DNA, and got to the gene level, there would be two, roughly 2,000 light switches on the outside of that gene. That's why we call it epigene. Okay. Epi means on the outside. And you can switch on a light switch and switch off a light switch at any point in your life, depending again on what we get exposed to in our environment. So the light switches that we were born with, or the code that we were born with, the genes stay the same, the DNA stays the same, but the light switches that are switched on and off are different as we grow and what we expose ourselves to in our environment. And this is why if you took identical twins and you put one in the Sahara and one in Siberia, over time they would look different and they, their bodies would react differently. It's not to mean that their genetics is not similar, it just means that based on what they get exposed to in the environment, from the from extreme temperatures to what they eat and don't eat and the emotional traumas and toxins and infections that they get exposed to would influence uh, how their body would react to it. So. In one way, you can switch them on when you uh, expose to either positive or negative influences in our environment, but at the same time, like you switch them off, then you do have the ability to uh, switch them off, switch you know, if, if they've been switched on. And this is probably why people get miracle cures from cancer. You know Nobody can really explain uh, how did they cure themselves? What did they do differently? So if you took liver cancer as an example, right? I mean, the, if you switched on the light switch for liver cancer in your body, it's not switched on in just one cell. Uh, it's switched on in all the liver cells. That's why all the liver cells are now potentially cancerous cells. So um, the cure would largely come in future in terms of understanding uh, what the sequence is or what the, where the light switches are in our DNA that are switched on for liver cancer and if we're able to switch them off to through whatever mechanism then that's when we develop the cure.
0: So is a disease like diabetes reversible in other words?
1: So it depends on which type of diabetes you're talking about. right? So, yeah. so I think if, if, if you get the, the lifestyle form of diabetes and if, you, if it is picked up early enough and you fix your diet and your lifestyle, then potentially this is reversible and it can be controlled. Okay? And I think in future, we will be able to cure diabetes. Okay. Okay? So there's different. There's a genetic form of, 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 of diabetes and then there's the lifestyle form of diabetes. So um, lifestyle diabetes is, is not difficult to treat, but peop, you know, it's often difficult because people have to make difficult choices in terms yeah. of... What they eat and don't eat, and how much and uh, how much they drink, and how much movement and exercise uh, they have, and and what they do from a uh, from a mind perspective. You know how do they how do how do they deal um, with it from a psychological point of view?
0: Do you then have a team of of different practitioners around you or that you connect with, because it's such a, a vast
1: yeah, sure. So, so, so look, I mean, I still enjoy practicing cardiology. I think, I, you know, the heart is not just a pump. I mean, I think it's the seat of uh, all emotion. And um, it's fascinating because I get referred many patients who don't really have a heart-related problem um, to have a look and to, to, to try and figure out, uh, you know, what's creating the, the dis-ease in their environment. So it's been a fascinating journey. We do work very closely with dietitians and psychologists, breathwork practitioners, endocrinologists um, and so on. So it depends on um, each patient, you know, what they present with uh, and who they need to see. So I see life that there's many gates on the top. And it doesn't matter which gate you come through. You may come through a dietitian, you may come through a psychologist, you may come through a reflexologist, you may come from uh, through a family practitioner. But ultimately the body doesn't react differently. You know the body reacts in exactly the same way to all forms of stress. okay? So um, they may end up with that, with me or they may see another doctor, they may see a priest, they may see a rabbi, they may see a psychologist. So, many people will find their answers uh, through many different people.
0: Before I, I change uh, tracks a little bit, one more question on the, on the nutrition. The way we cook our food, does that play a role in this at all? Uh,
1: yeah, I think we tend. Look, you, you get, you're taking micronutrient fruit and vegetables and protein, okay? And you're then overcooking it. So, you, you, it's already the micronutrient content is less, okay? And then we tend to cook it to death yeah all right so that uh we eating healthier but we're starving in the face of plenty all right so um you know the saying goes you are what you eat as you said earlier if the cow eats the grain and you eat the cow you become the grain yes okay so uh, i've got patients for example that uh, diabetic patients that when they eat commercial beef and chicken and eggs, their sugar levels are always not controlled. But for example, if they ate karu lamb, or if they ate uh, game meat as a protein, their sugar levels are controlled. So although people assume they need to go onto a high protein diet, like if they're diabetic or if they're overweight, it also depends on the type of protein that you're consuming.
0: Is there a specific diet that you would recommend to people, or is it change for every
1: individual? So. It may be, I think for me, when you look at uh, nutrition and diet, there's, there's probably one way of eating that may need to be modified from a calorie perspective uh, depending on what's wrong with you. You know, So, for example, if you're diabetic or non-diabetic. Uh, diet should be actually quite simple. I think we need to eat less, perhaps maybe once a day with the odd snack. Uh, I think we need to eat... Uh, anti-inflammatory foods. Okay, so more fruit, more vegetables, uh, things like curcumin from turmeric. Um, you know, more of, try and get more of them. Go green, so to speak. Limit the amount of animal protein to roughly five to ten percent of our total meals. Not five to ten percent of every meal. Okay, um, and then perhaps if you can get plant-based protein. You know, if 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 you want to go that way. Um, high omega-3 rich fats, uh, reduce the amount of omega-6 considerably in our diet um, and, and yeah, I mean I think trying to get to that balance of, of, of eating healthier, eating less, but making sure you're eating the right type of fat, the right type of sugar um, and you know, the right type of protein.
0: The eating once a day thing is, comes down to fasting periods. Um, what does that do to your body besides the calorie deficit that you 're going into? Mm.
1: There are many benefits of 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 intermittent fasting. I think uh, you know if you go back thousands of years uh, we didn 't sit down at a table and have, as I said, three meals a day, two snacks, and have a fridge full of food uh, so for me, we had to hunt for our food, so we had to move uh, and run to hunt for our food and food was probably in scarce supply, so some days we ate and some days we didn't eat. And we ate grass-fed animal protein, or we had seeds and nuts uh, and berries and fruits. We didn't have refined white bread and, and sugar and starch. So, But we were also active and we burnt off the excess uh, calories. So I think if you, you know, although intermittent fasting may be a good idea, the aim is to, to, to look at it from a point of view of what do I want to achieve? Okay. Do I need to eat three times a day? And what time of the day then I eat is important. You know, the saying goes, breakfast like a king, lunch like a prince, supper like a pauper. Now, there's a reason for that. You know, our metabolism is highest from four o'clock in the morning till probably 10 or 11 o'clock on midday because that's the time we went and we hunted when it was cooler in the morning. You know, so um, at night we had to, or at sunset we needed to retreat into our caves, otherwise the wild animals caught us. So we have a circadian rhythm in our body that follows the day-night cycle, and our metabolism follows exactly the same rules. Okay, so that if um, you eat a big meal at night, when your metabolism is slow, you're going to store those excess calories
0: and that plays into the sleep cycle as well if you we eat too late it seems that we have problems falling asleep and have poor sleeping patterns and we're not sleeping the right amount of time
1: yeah i think sleep is a very interesting uh, topic there are many reasons why we don't sleep or don't get enough uh, sleep our body needs to rest it needs to go through that cycle of adequate rest and recovery now if you look at what happens to the body physiologically when we are exposed to chronic stress, so we're either faced with acute stress or chronic stress. So either the lion is behind you ready to pounce, uh, and that's an acute response that saves our life. So we, leave, uh, we release massive amounts of adrenaline uh, into our body uh, that creates the fight, flight, and fright response uh, to save our life. So that's, that's, not, that's a good thing. Our lifestyle or our bodies were never ever designed for the life our lifestyle today. Right. We are faced with chronic stress from the time we get up in the morning till the time we go to bed at night. So our adrenaline levels are not sky high but somewhere here in the middle and that demands that your anti-stress system has to constantly keep pace with these higher adrenaline levels and eventually our body can't keep pace and that system goes down. And we end up with something called sympathetic overdrive or too much uh, adrenaline uh, in our body. And this has certain effects on our body. It will create the mental fatigue, the muscle aches and pains, the anxiety, the palpitations, the lower immunity, um, more injuries when we exercise, poor healing, and so on. And the list goes on and on and on. So uh, this excess adrenaline that's floating around in our blood then will also prevent us from sleeping because at a brain level you, you, you're constantly awake. Your body doesn't want you to fall asleep or you fall asleep but you have an interrupted sleep or you don't have a, a deep enough sleep to, to recover. So it's crucially important to understand what is happening at a physiological level in the body okay, based on what we get exposed to in our environment that actually gives us the symptoms. So it's very easy, we can take a sleeping pill and block that effect and fall asleep. But have we really treated the cause or the why? And I think that's what functional medicine is all about, is understanding what in our environment is actually contributing to us being unwell.
0: I want to just change track a little bit and stay on the the diseases, but ask you why is COVID-19 killing people that have these chronic diseases?
1: So that's a very interesting question, Nick. I mean, there's many reasons. I mean, for me, um, I have so many questions about this. You know, I mean, when we have the common flu virus, okay, that affects us every year. Everybody gets affected by it in some form or the other, right? With uh, COVID, it tends to affect older patients over the age of sixty with chronic diseases like high blood pressure and diabetes. Uh, I think one of the important reasons. Maybe be that patients are on a class of blood pressure pills. Uh, so you have to understand how the virus actually gets into the cell. Yes. And the virus binds to something called the ACE2 receptor on the surface of our cell and then is internalized into the, into the body and the body would then react to it the traditional way. Now, when we on certain medications, uh, uh, p- particularly some classes of blood pressure pills, um, the number of these re- receptors increase or are upregulated on the surface of our cells. So perhaps what is happening is that it's the viral load again okay. rather than the actual virus and that gets into the system and then the body's perception of that is, well, I need to go to war with everything that I have. And you have a massive inflammatory response into a high in response to a high viral load and it's the massive inflammatory response, or what people refer to as the cytokine storm, that actually then damages the lung, damages the liver, damages the heart, uh, creates the clotting, uh, and subsequent to the, uh, all the subsequent effects of that. Um, I think for me, it's it, it's it's very unusual or or strange that young you know um, younger people and adolescents and children may be exposed to the virus, but they don't really get any major uh, consequences. The vast majority of people are asymptomatic. So we have to ask the question then, why is it that some people react in one way and the vast majority of people don't react or, at all? We don't even know that they've had the infection. So uh, there are some studies to now to show that uh, your blood group plays a role so that uh, people with blood group A are at higher risk for uh, developing severe corona infection versus blood group o weight has a protective effect
0: what would be the mechanism there sorry to interrupt it, again
1: you. it's a, it's 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 maybe gene based okay on, in in the AB, ABO group grouping system that we have the recent studies have also shown um uh, there's some recent very interesting recent work that has been done on glutathione yes okay that shows that Patients who have, or patients who have severe corona infection, have very low glutathione levels. Now, glutathione uh, comes from things like fresh fruit and vegetables, and that may be the reason why we tend to have more of these flu-like illnesses in winter, when we're not eating or not having enough fresh fruit and vegetables in our diet. So, glutathione as a substance or as a chemical. Has potent antiviral properties, anti-inflammatory uh, properties uh, in our body and may not prevent you from getting the infection, but may reduce the likelihood that you get a severe infection. So there's some interesting work that's coming out now, more and more of the uh, publications. So the other big issue is why, do, why are we not yet, perhaps, seeing massive amounts of death and severe infections in our HIV population. So if it's all related to our immunity, then the vast majority of patients uh, with HIV that are immunocompromised, have lower immunity, should be getting uh, a more severe infection. And we're not necessarily seeing that. Perhaps it's too early in our country. Remember that our demographics are very different to other countries around the world. We have the highest rate of HIV in the world. So we estimate that between 20 and 25 percent of our population may be HIV positive, but we only really know about seven million people that have been tested, and we don't know uh, in those patients uh, what percentage of patients are actually virally suppressed, doing well on the antiretroviral therapy and their medication and so on. So there's a vast, there's a massive group of people out there that haven't been tested, may have uh, lower immune systems and maybe immunocompromised. But we're not seeing that massive number of of cases in the HIV population, and, and the massive death rate that everybody has been expecting. So again, we need to ask why. You know, why is this so? Okay, and perhaps HIV patients are getting uh, COVID nineteen, but because their immune systems are weaker, they're not getting the severe inflammatory response that people who are HIV negative uh, are getting. So there's a lot of interesting uh, angles to this whole coronavirus. Um, I don't think we fully understand all of it just yet. And I think it may take us uh, or take that medical community a while to fully understand uh, how this virus affects us, how does it get into our system, and what are the reasons for some people being affected versus other people not.
0: One of the studies that I've seen along with the glutathione, is on vitamin D. Yes. And um, obviously that we get from the sun. There's a chronic case of deficiency in vitamin D around the world is what it seems like according to this study. Is that something that could also be looked at as a possible way of lowering your chances of getting severe
1: Yeah. so vitamin D is interesting because I mean we live in a sunny country but the vast majority of people are vitamin D deficient. Remember you also get vitamin D in your food from eating oily fish and and dairy and so on. So again, if you take things like salmon, it's all farmed salmon. It's no longer wild salmon. And you are what you eat. So take vitamin B12. The vast majority of people that we see have suboptimal to deficient levels of vitamin B12. And these are just two common ones that we test. So for all of us, we, as I said, we eat healthier, we're having more fruit and vegetables, but we're not getting enough of the micronutrients that we need to get in our, in, our, in, our, in our food. And our body then has to react to these deficiencies. And it's that reaction over long periods of time that actually makes us unwell.
0: Is there a case then for supplementation of these vitamins and minerals?
1: Yeah, so again, this is controversial. I think we need to get to the point of, and pretty soon we will have the ability to do personalized nutritional assessments and figure out what's actually missing in our bodies and supplement it in a little bit more of a scientific way. Uh, You know, the danger is you walk into a pharmacy and every natural product makes a claim and we start overdosing on it. So we end up with what I call expensive urine, when you don't really need it, so I think it's if you know the idea is to to do it in to, to do it from a point of moderation, and trying to get lots of fruit and vegetables, and eat what is the fruit that is in season, look to see what has been grown recently and still has sand on its roots and so on, um, and avoid eating uh, food processed fruit and vegetables that have come from all over the world. Uh, and have been ir- irradiated and been in cold storage for long periods of time. Um, and then in terms of Corona and COVID, uh, zinc, vitamin D, vitamin C, quercetin have all been shown to have beneficial effects in terms of our immunity. So once again, they do not necessarily prevent you from getting the infection, but may, um, may um, boost your immunity to allow you to have a milder infection.
0: If there's a, a person listening this that wants to know what is the best way for them to, to decrease their chances, would, would something like an IV drip with Glutathione and Vitamin D be a, a good option, or is it just the diet that they should look at?
1: So I think, uh, you know, again, um, it's difficult to say that everybody needs intravenous Glutathione, and I think we could get that by eating as fresh as possible. Um, in certain high-risk groups of patients, uh, perhaps intravenous uh, glutathione may have a role to play. Okay, in terms of uh, and intravenous vitamin C for that uh, for that matter, um, and vitamin D orally through supplementation okay. and zinc orally should be sufficient. If you cannot get to intravenous vitamin C, then oral vitamin C, oral zinc, oral vitamin D uh, would be more than sufficient.
0: How many IU's of vitamin D would you? recommend to someone that's just trying to keep a good maintenance?
1: So again, as I said to you, I mean, we can test vitamin D levels and your, your supplementation or the amount of vitamin D that you need would largely be dependent on what those levels are. Okay. So some people are more deficient than others and we just have to be careful not to create vitamin D toxicity without actually realizing what's going on.
0: Okay. So at the moment, getting into the sun as much as you can is the best option?
1: Yeah, spend time in the sun. Uh, you know, as I said, you eat lots of oily fish and look for natural sources of vitamin D. Um, there are vitamin D supplements at, at low doses that are available off the shelf that you can use. But it may be worthwhile testing your vitamin D levels to see how low.
0: How, d- how do we test that? Is it a it's blood a simple test? Okay. blood test, yeah. Okay. There's been some talk that the... The COVID virus is more a blood virus than a respir- respiratory mm. virus. Is that something that you would agree with? Uh,
1: yes. So, look, I think for me, we have to ask, there's a, they've coined a term called happy hypoxia. Okay. And happy hypoxia is where your oxygen saturations are below 90%, uh, perhaps 80%, 82%, and you look normal. You're blue, but you look normal. Are you talking? Yeah. Now, that's not what we would normally see in many people when their oxygen saturations are low from a pneumonia, as an example. Okay? Often, those types of patients would need to be on a ventilator already. I oh, mean, wow. they'd, they'd be huffing and puffing away. So, um, what we, you know, there are suggestions that the virus affects our red blood cell in a very particular way to limit its ability to carry oxygen in the blood. Okay. So it's not necessarily primarily a lung infection, like a pneumonia. You may end up with the consequences of that, but initially as the virus gets into the bloodstream, it may, uh, as I said, drive this inflammatory response, uh, damage or affect our red blood cells similar to, and this may be the reason why the anti-malarial tablets work because the malaria parasite also infects the red blood cell, okay? So um, and then your body is always trying to react to something that's going on in in the body. Yeah. It doesn't just happen that way. So it's this massive inflammatory response that the body goes to war with, trying to uh, kill the virus or kill the effects of the virus and trying to heal you. That actually then creates um, uh, the the severity of the corona infection. And the lung may be infected, but doesn't necessarily get damaged initially. I think it's the massive inflammatory response that damages our lung tissue, makes it more leaky, fluid moves into the lung tissue, it then makes it harder to get oxygen in. And what we do know that uh, early on in this pandemic, in other countries, they've elected to ventilate patients too early, you know And the ventilation itself, is an additional form of pressure or volume trauma on the lung so if you do that in an already inflamed or damaged lung it can makes the whole process worse okay so what we know now in hindsight uh, from the experience of many other countries out there is that uh, you know ventilation should be your last resort going on to a ventilator external ventilation uh, without necessarily having to put a tube down uh, may actually work a lot better and prevent a lot of that trauma to the lung. And what we're finding is that patients actually tend—you know—there's a higher recovery rate in those patients. That was my
0: next question. It was the ventilation because there was there was a big rush for ventilations, almost like an arms race for ventilators in the world, and then suddenly there started to come yeah. one or two cases where they said the ventilator actually didn't help the patient now we're in a point where we think that the ventilators could actually do additional harm so if a person is offered a ventilator because I think in the hospitals they may still offer them quite early is, it, is there a way to say no to this or
1: no I I don't think it's it's a question of saying yes or no to it I think it's it's what is appropriate uh, for each patient so depending on the severity of, 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 of what's going on in our body so um for the vast majority of people that <coughs> excuse me have lower oxygen levels in their blood, um you know ventilation uh, should not be the initial uh, reason uh to treat those low oxygen levels. We could try an external form of vent normal oxygen through a mask or external ventilation first, and if that is not working and we have no other resort, then perhaps a ventilator would be required, okay, as a last resort. So um, I think we know very well now, okay, that um, ventilating patients earlier may actually cause more harm than good.
0: What is the connection between type 2 diabetes and the red blood cells in the lungs or something like that that I I overheard Tim Noakes speaking about that? Is there something like that?
1: Well, again, you see, most patients with the lifestyle form or type 2 form of um, diabetes uh, are on the same blood pressure pills that may increase the number of okay. receptors on the surface of their cell. So they may be more prone to getting infected with a higher viral load perhaps. Okay. Okay? And that may contribute to towards, And then there is an association between things like obesity. Um, inpatient uh, type 2 diabetics are usually overweight. Okay, and patients who are overweight and obese may be at higher risk of getting this infection as well.
0: So, what should people do now in order to just protect themselves a little bit better?
1: Yeah, so there's two elements to this. One is looking at supplementing with things like simple things like, as we said, vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc, quercetin, uh, omega 3, keeping your immunity strong, eating healthier. Uh, if you do have a chronic disease like diabetes make sure that your sugar is well controlled that your blood pressure is controlled um, and that you uh, if you fall into that higher risk category try and isolate more or social distance more I mean you actually don't want to be out and about if you in that high high risk category of of patients so that group of patients should actually be in lockdown yeah okay um, then the big other component of 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 this whole pandemic are the psychological effects that it yeah. is creating okay. uh, you and i you know may come from a medical background and may understand it and may will be armed with a different knowledge base for the vast majority of people out there they watching things online reading what's online um, and there's a lot of fear you know you get diagnosed you get admitted to hospital uh, your family's not allowed to visit you uh, you can't watch the TV in the ward because you're not allowed to wear earphones uh, and so on. So uh, it's a very scary place to be for many people. In fact, recently we've had a few suicides already of elderly people because they're just so afraid of getting this corona infection. Now, I'm not sure if enough is being done uh, to manage uh, these fears and the anxiety and the depression and perhaps suicides in this acute phase of this corona infection, but also what is going to happen going down the line, going forward. Okay, uh, Many people have lost their jobs, many people have had their salaries cut, many people have uncertain futures, uh, they're not sure what happens to their kids' education, uh, and so on, So, and what effects the lockdown has had on us. It's okay to have a lockdown for two weeks for all of us to recover and feel good, but when this is going over, when this happens over a prolonged period of time, the negative effects of uh, the, or psychological effects of this virus is still not being addressed, and I feel feel that a lot more needs to happen uh, to to allay p- p- patients and people's fears around this pandemic, uh, and I think that fear that we all have of getting this virus, of being on a ventilator, of dying, again, is another reason to drive our adrenaline levels up, create greater sympathetic overdrive, or what we call autonomic dysfunction, and that then has negative effects in terms of our blood pressure, in terms of our sugar control, in terms of our sleep, uh, and, and what we will experience. So, like we exposed to so many different traumas in our life, uh, this pandemic is just creating another massive fear in people's lives.
0: And I think this pandemic, with all the news going on, there's almost an a ongoing, consistent micro-trauma in the back of our minds that keeps coming up. We can't recover from it because it's in our face the whole time.
1: Yes, so it's constantly on the news. And, you know, it's the number of cases and the number of cases going up and we're looking at the numbers. And as the numbers rise, it just creates more and more fear. You know? So um, for me, uh, from my side, I think it's crucially important that we start to address, or whether it comes f- from a point of government or through medical societies or through the psychologists uh, in our country, that we start looking at solutions and means of actually supporting people and uh, addressing, especially many elderly people, that are just so afraid to go out so afraid to do anything because the fear of death is probably the single most important fear that we have in our lives.
0: And it's just been heightened. I think the fear of death exists in most people and now it's
1: been extremely heightened. For sure. Yeah. So remember that all fears stem from one primal fear, which is the fear of death. Okay, And then it's really how we react to these fears that are very important, both from a mind perspective and a thought perspective, but also from a physiological perspective. The body has to make sense, the physical body has to make sense of these emotions that we are feeling uh, and react to it, you know, to allow us to cope. And when we get exposed to it over long periods of time, this is what actually contributes to us developing that heart attack or the stroke or the cancer and so on. So uh, my 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 perception or prediction is that we are in an acute phase of a pandemic globally okay but we also have to look beyond the pandemic and say well what's going to happen next and it's not a short-term thing of where suddenly everything is back to the old normal i think it's going to get worse uh, in in many different ways we're going to see the chronic effects of this pandemic down the line
0: the case for more fast food being eaten in this period of time because people are scared to go to the shops and things and now that Mcdonald's and those drive throughs are open, I shouldn't mention one but all of the fast foods um and we do know that a lot of anxiety can
1: be caused by a problem in your
0: in our gut health and our
1: microbiome yeah, so the microbiome is 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 actually very interesting, and I think billions of euros and dollars have been spent. Uh, trying to understand our microbiome. So if you look at the human body, we roughly on average have maybe 60 60 trillion cells in in, in our body. Of that, only six trillion are human. The rest are viruses and bacteria uh, and other things. Okay, so uh, the microbiome means or refers to the sum total of the genetic material of all these other viruses and bacteria in our body and they have a um, beneficial role to play in terms of protecting us. Okay? We get exposed to thousands of viruses every year and our microbiome is essential to ensure, it, it's another layer of ensuring that our immunity is strong and our body can cope with what we get exposed to in our environment. Now, when you take an antibiotic as an example, an antibiotic cannot distinguish a good versus a bad bacteria. Okay? It, it kills uh, billions of bacteria in your gut and then you get bad bacterial overgrowth and yeast or candida overgrowth in our bowel and the candida cannot then digest certain foods um, and get it into a form that allows our body to absorb the micronutrients. So we're over sanitizing our hands, you know, with alcohol. And now we understand methanol in a lot of the products and methanol is toxic. So so simple soap and water should suffice. But uh, ensuring that you've got a healthy microbiome is probably another crucial step in terms of ensuring a strong level of immunity in our body.
0: I just want to touch on that quickly because I recently had to do a course of antibiotics for a tooth infection. Tried to not do it, but I think the dangers were, were too vast. Um, and that led to a, about a period of two weeks where I had extremely upset stomachs and anxiety and just a quick bout of depressive thoughts and emotions. Luckily, I understand those things a little bit from my background. But I have a friend that recently went through the mm. same thing to a point where he had thoughts of harming his mom and couldn't understand where these thoughts were coming from. So antibiotics and the role it plays in, in firstly in the gut and the microbiome, but also in the, the amount of dangers there are compared, I mean, attached to it. Can you speak a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so look, I'm not saying antibiotics are necessarily bad. Sometimes yeah. you need an antibiotic. It's how we use the antibiotic. Okay. So the standard thing that happens is you see a doctor, you get an antibiotic for a throat infection. Okay, That will then create a thrush in a woman and she may get a urine infection. Okay, And then we say, well, maybe this antibiotic didn't work, so let's try a more broad-spectrum antibiotic. And we kill off a lot more bacteria. And uh, what happens is you develop overgrowth of candida and we're eating a lot of sugar so the yeast love fruit sugar and sugars so they multiply at a massive level in our gut the candida then tries to get into your bloodstream through the bowel wall so your immune system on the other side of that wall is now chronically activated to prevent that yeast from getting into your bloodstream and remember that our immune systems were never designed to be chronically active You're supposed to go up, fight, come down, rest, go up, come down, fight, down, rest. So it's like you going to war, um, let's say, against Namibia with all your soldiers. But now you've got another war against Zimbabwe and Mozambique and everyone else, and you don't have enough soldiers left. So all that happens is your immune system is trying to overwork to try and prevent this yeast infection from getting into your bloodstream but is weak elsewhere, so you get a, another ear infection, or you get a secondary throat infection, or you get um, a skin rash or a, an eczema flares up. Okay, So uh, it's a vicious cycle. So if you do need an antibiotic, then you need to make sure you're supplementing with enough probiotics, and not just whilst you're on the antibiotic, you know, but at least pro- potentially going forward for a month or so after the antibiotic, to uh, make sure that you restore the balance within your gut.
0: I just want to touch on Candida quickly. Um, f- for people that may be wondering that if they are suffering from this, that's something that can be picked up in a live blood analysis. I did one with, with Kim
1: just the other day. Is there another way to, to pick up on Candida? No, so I just think for me, you know, many patients with uh, an imbalance in their microbiome or in their gut flora, let me put it that way, um, will not be digesting their foods or absorbing, will present with various uh, deficiencies, may present with irritable bowel syndrome or what we call spastic colon, uh, may present with a chronic thrush, um, recurrent urine infections, and so on. So you can almost, and you know, skin disorders, uh, chronic fatigue, um, and so you can almost anticipate that you may, Pick it up in in some patients if you get a good history okay. of, of what they've been exposed to, um, and it's easily correctable. I mean, if you understand the problem, okay, it can can be uh, can can be managed. A live blood analysis um, is a simple tool to be able to pick up candida in the blood. Um, yeah, so I think it's 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 a common problem, okay, today, and there's many factors that contribute to it.
0: Okay. Doc, I wanna move on to, to something that I know you you're quite an expert in and amongst other things, it's it's growth hormone. So <laughs> <laughs> I know well, you I'm sorry, I know you're interested in, in endocrinology and things. Um, and I spoke to Doc Wayne and he said, No, nah, I can't ask him these questions, I need to come and ask you these questions.
1: Yeah, so I think, look, I mean, growth hormone, again, is, 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 is controversial. I mean, there's specific indications for using growth hormone from a medical perspective. Um, many people use growth hormone for off-label purposes. So it's used, uh, you know, within the uh, fitness community yeah. and gym community, uh, possibly in an unregulated fashion, you know, to, to grow muscle and to, to bulk up. So uh, that's a choice that people uh, then make. Uh, you know, as we do age, our, you know, we don't age, uh, our hormones are not low because we age. We age because our hormonal levels are low. So again, it's growth hormone is just one crucial hormone amongst a whole list of other hormones that determine what happens to our bodies. So from an excess or a deficiency perspective. So when you're looking at it from an aging or an anti-aging perspective we have to look at it very differently. It's never a single factor uh, uh, like growth hormone. Growth hormone is just one important uh, factor and some people do have very low growth hormone levels and they will age at a faster rate. But um, it's not just the growth hormone but a whole series of other hormones in our body that contribute to 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 how a body reacts, you know. So the question always is, why is it <clears throat> that some people age at a faster rate, whereas other people age at a slower rate? Why is it that um, uh, you know people some pas- some people have an earlier menopause or will get cancer at an earlier age uh, or dementia at an earlier age compared to other people? So, like I was saying earlier, there are three major components <coughs> excuse me, that influences what happens to us. One is the degree of micro-inflammation in our body over long periods of time, what we call chronic low-grade inflammation. The second major component of uh, what will determine um, the rate at which we age is the f- is the function of our autonomic nervous system. This is what I explained earlier about your sympathetic and your parasympathetic nervous system. So if your sympathetic nervous system or stress system is chronically elevated or out of balance, then our cells will age at a faster rate uh, in response to this stressful environment. And the third major component would be our hormonal levels, either excesses or deficiencies in our hormonal or endocrine system that then either individually or together as a panel would influence the rate at which we age. So growth hormone is just one one component of this entire spectrum of understanding how our body reacts to what's going on uh, either externally or internally in our body.
0: So those that I've started to look at growth hormone for anti-aging purposes. Would there be a benefit in that, or is it too little to to do it? I mean, singularly.
1: Right. So again, it's it's the same argument like vitamin D, okay, and everything else is that um, you can use growth hormone, but it has to be done in a uh, in a very structured way and based on what your levels are, okay. So. Uh, if you're going to be using growth hormone and buy it in a gym and take a high dose, that could potentially have negative effects in the body. So the aim around this is that if you're going to use growth hormone, use it in a controlled environment, after you've discussed this with your medical professional or endocrinologist, look, measured your levels, and and if you're going to replace it, at least replace it uh, in a controlled fashion okay? or supplement it in a controlled fashion. Um, because it may have negative effects uh, at very high levels as well.
0: What are some of the negative effects?
1: Well, we know that growth hormone may create, for example, a similar effect to an athlete's heart. It will thicken the muscle in your heart. Uh, There's some controversy around whether, uh, when we have cancerous cells in our body, if using very high growth hormone levels may accelerate cancer growth uh, and so on. So it does make you feel good. I mean, pe- people love growth hormone, but again, it has to be done in a very controlled fashion by people who know what they're doing.
0: Yeah, I have a little bit of a theory about kids playing sports at school and, and Wayne has directed this theory towards growth hormone where I always thought that the, the schools that play rugby, for example, with boots on from grade 1, 2 and 3 almost, like in the southern suburbs in Cape Town, There's a clear distinction between the sizes of those kids at the age of 13 and the pole schools or the Joburg schools or free state schools that play barefoot their whole lives up until high school. And I thought maybe the muscles in the foot and the ankles not developing properly is related to the the growth rate of those kids. But Wayne says it's all got to do with growth hormone and what they're eating. So what what would your take be on why... Kids from certain schools are distinctly smaller or bigger than kids from other schools.
1: So remember that, again, stature, short stature, tall stature uh, has a huge genetic component to it. If your parents are short, more than likely you're going to be short as well. So so the genetic component. Then there's other factors, again, environmental factors. So nutrition plays a key role. uh, Psychological trauma and stresses at an earlier age uh, may affect the level at which we grow, and then largely again I mean, in terms of what we're eating today, right? I mean remember that um, many of the foods or the proteins that we consume, the, con- the commercial protein, may have growth hormone or growth factors okay let 's not say growth hormone, but growth factors in our protein, and that may also be contributing to kids being bigger some kids being bigger, I mean depending on what they're eating. Uh, Then there's also the whole uh, controversial component of supplementation, Um, you know, at an earlier age in in, in sporting teams uh, for people to bulk up, for kids to bulk up and to be stronger. Yeah. So steroids, uh, growth hormone, insulin, um, you know, all these types of of steroid-based products that then allow you to bulk up, okay, and to grow bigger. There's been a, a bit
0: of a trend in in the things you've been saying r- regarding finding the balance that works for you. Um, I want to just move that quickly to exercise, maybe as a way to end off because this is more related to the heart and cardiology. Is there a case for over exercising being dangerous to the heart?
1: Most definitely. So so remember, our body again was never designed for what we do to it today. Okay. We were active when we were hunting or being hunted, and then we rested. Okay? Uh, you don't see a lion get up in the morning and say, mm, today I'm going out for a jog, because yeah. it's wear and tear on our body. So I'm not saying that exercise is bad for you. No. I'm saying it's the type of exercise and the frequency of exercise that we do and the stressors that we, play, that we place on our body and whether there is adequate rest and recovery between it. So you can't be cycling or at uh, doing 300 kilometers by six o'clock in the morning every morning and hope that your body's gonna be able to respond every morning in exactly the same way. Okay? So our bodies respond to all forms of stress physiologically in exactly the same way. It just depends on the amount and the duration of the stress that we place on our body. So we know, for example, that elite athletes Develop something called the overtraining syndrome and there's two stages as a stage one and stage two to this overtraining syndrome stage one being the earlier milder form and stage two being the more severe form and again I mean when you have the stage two of this overtraining syndrome and your body's out of balance you're more likely to get a viral infection every time you go in gym or you're more likely to get injuries with poor healing and poor recovery Uh, or you're more likely to have uh, a lower exercise capacity or, you know, your body would respond uh, in a very different way. I mean, you're not going to be performing at the same pace and the same performance levels every single time. So we know that adequate rest and recovery is important. There are ways in which you can supplement uh, your levels, There ways, very simple ways in terms of measuring your autonomic function and getting that balanced. And what we find now is that one of the key um, interventions around getting your body balanced is to is to breathe. Yes. Okay. So breath work, breathing in the right way, and breath work or breathing in the right way stimulates your parasympathetic nervous system, or relaxing system, to create that balance. Okay. Uh, meditation, mindfulness uh, techniques are becoming more and more commonplace. Uh, and very interesting subject, uh, and and looking at ways in which that uh, process can get you more balanced. So if you look at it from a, from an exercise perspective, if you've got other factors in your environment that are creating imbalances in your body, and then you go in gym, okay? Because people feel maybe I'm tired and I'm anxious because I'm just not exercising. Yes. Actually, the exercise under those circumstances will make you worse. Worse. Yeah. yeah. Okay. so it's crucial that we you look uh, or critical that we look at things look at you holistically, understand you from the beginning what is going on in your environment that's creating your stressors what are the emotions attached to these events in your life and often it's always you're either coming from a point of uh, from a point of love or for you coming from a point of fear which maybe a topic for another day, that yeah. it's the same thing, but all other negative emotions that we experience, like guilt and anger and shame and resentment and so on, are just derivatives of a core fear. And then it's our reaction to these fears in our environment and what we eat and don't eat and so on, and what we breathe in and don't breathe in, would then influence our genes in, in a negative or positive way That then influences our physical cells and structures in our body that then makes us symptomatic. So, whether you're an elite athlete, whether you're a CEO of a company, whether you're an adolescent or scholar in school with lots of family trauma, uh, whether you're getting divorced, uh, whether somebody has died, it doesn't really matter. Okay, I mean, these form of external traumas will influence our body in a very similar way.
0: Thanks, Doc. I want to end off with uh, three, <coughs> three questions that I ask all my guests. And the first one is three books that you would recommend people to to have a look at in this time.
1: Wow. Okay. I mean, that's a, that's a very interesting uh, question. I think for me, um, you know, there have been various books, not just now, but, you know, over the last 20 years, that have may have influenced my thinking in a very specific way. I've read many of uh, Deepak Chopra's books, so yeah. uh, synchronicity and central Synchro destiny. Um, there's a um, you know I've read Neil Donald Walsh's Conversations with God. I've read uh, there's a fantastic book out now called Breathe online uh, that you can download. Uh, you know that that speaks very. Uh, interestingly, about how our breathing uh, affects us. How do we breathe? You know. So, uh, I mean, there are so many different books that have contributed to my understanding in so many different aspects. Yeah. Not just in terms of cardiology or in 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 medicine, but just general spirituality and understanding uh, our role and why we are here.
0: And I think there's a big, a big shift in. Maybe the collective knowledge of the world that the mind, body, soul connection is more important than what we've always thought. I think maybe in cultures that aren't the Western cultures it's always been something, but in the Western culture it's
1: become quite important. Sure. So there's nothing really new, Nick. It's all existed um already. Um and it may just not have been marketed or mainstream or the way we were trained, uh to to, to help each other. Okay. But uh, the mind-body connection and physical body connection is crucial. Okay, going forward, uh, I think we are moving as much as we are moving into uh, a new technological age and an age of digital superintelligence. Uh, I also think that uh, we will have more time on our hands to be able to address uh, how we will approach life and whatever. So there's massive stressors and new stressors going to come our way. Uh, in the next five to 10 years. I think the world is gonna be in a phenomenally different place. I don't think we're going to be able to compete with things like AI uh, as human beings. So we will react to the world and will live in the world and will respond to our physical environment very differently going forward. And there would, um, you know, perhaps the greater opportunities are for, you know, For example, in looking after elderly patients, home nursing, physiotherapy, psychology, uh, that these are the professions that will be in very high demand going forward because we are just going to be faced with so many psychological stresses or how we react to them in future.
0: What are the five most important things in your life right now?
1: Well, one is, I think probably the most important thing is understanding me. Okay, understanding myself and 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 and, and teach over teaching and reminding myself that um, it's me creating my reality. Okay, only I create my reality through my choices. Um, you know that you don't blame anybody else for it. Uh, you create your own reality and your perception of your reality. Um, two is the uh, uh, is how how do I give more. Uh, to my fellow human beings, So I come from the concept that we are all one. So that whatever I give you, I'm only giving back to myself. And uh, however I harm you, I'm only harming myself. So I think if all of us on this planet actually understood this concept, okay, then there would be less animosity and less hate, uh, and less poverty and less everything in that from a negative perspective. Um, and uh, it's. Exceptionally liberating when you understand this concept, okay, that we are all one, um, and that if we start off from the concept of giving our best and giving of everything that we have, or giving from ourselves to everybody else, that we could have a very different uh, world, okay. So uh, now it's racism, tomorrow it may be sexism, Tomo- yeah. the next day it's something else, you know. So there's constant separation and constant division. But before you can ask somebody else, because it's nobody doing anything to you. okay? You are experiencing it yourself. So I think for us, I think for me, uh, it's how do we get people and everyone else to understand this concept. That before you can not be a racist and before you can not uh, experience your perception of racism, is that you have to find that inner strength within yourself and understand that you are absolutely perfect the way that you are, already. Okay. Uh, so, um, yeah, these are important things for me. I mean, in terms of, uh, of of understanding myself and how I exist in the world and what my role is in the world. Uh, thirdly, it's you know it's it it it's uh, you know family is important and 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 how do I uh, how do I bring up my kids uh, in a that will participate in a very different world to be emotionally um, strong enough to deal with the different stressors that are going to be coming that way, okay? Um, Four, I mean, important for me would be to climb more mountains. Oh, yeah. I, mean, I love climbing mountains. You just can't travel now. Uh, and getting out into nature and experiencing the beauty of nature while we still can. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, lastly, is 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 how do I give this? How do I teach this? How do I give this to as a way to as many people as possible? I've had the blessing and the luxury of having uh, been in a profession like medicine that uh, gives you the opportunity of meeting different people every day in your life. Okay, and I don't believe that they come into our life by coincidence. It's not that they've come to me for any special talent or anything else. Uh, The universe uh, creates that environment through choice to allow us to meet different people in our lives as a gift. Okay, so um, if you start the conversation with everybody that you meet uh, from a point of view of what gift am I sharing with them today, Instead of what am I taking from them today, or how much can I steal from them or take from them, and so on, and and, and then lastly, I think for me is living my life uh, from a point of uh, detachment and getting to a point of acceptance that every moment that ar- arises in my life is absolute perfection because I've chosen it to be so. Okay, so um, I've you know had as I said the luxury of of. Uh, gaining a deeper understanding, it may, be, may not be right, it may be, or there's no right or wrong, but it may be, it's my perception of how I wish to experience my reality and how I wish to experience the world, how I wish to experience my relationships with people and my interactions with, uh, with, with everyone. And I mean, that has changed my life profoundly in, in, in the way I approach medicine or I approach healing or well being rather than looking at it purely from a pure sick point of view on a pure uh, there's a role for everything in our lives uh, for medication for hospitalization uh, for exercise for for enjoying life and so on and then finally i would say nick that at the end of the day if we look at why we are here and it's very simple i mean we uh, we, we, we face this question all the time, and we pose this question to our, ourselves all the time. Why am I here? Why am I here now? What am I supposed to do? What is my purpose in life? And our sole purpose is just to experience the joy of our divinity. Okay? To experience joy in every moment of your life, okay? and understand that you are divine. You are a divine being and you are part of something bigger. And the minute we can get to that point of understanding that every moment as it arises is actually pure joy. It's just our perception that we call it fear or, or guilt or anger because we have created all of it. We have chosen all of it. So from my point of view, I've, it, it has changed my life in, in, to move in a different direction so that everything that we do and everything that we try and create and experience. We come from that point of experience joy in everything that we do.
0: Doc, I don't think I could find a better way to end this than, than that, even if I tried. Um, thank you very much for that, and I would just like to give you a chance just to tell people where they can find you, where they can reach you, <laughs> and then... Um...
1: Yeah, so, so look, I mean, um, these days I actually practice very little medicine. I mean, I try to uh, try and teach more. Um, what I did realize in uh, not so long ago, five years ago, in fact, was to say, well, you know, I can't die with this knowledge and this experience and understanding of what I know now, Right? Is how do I give it away to a million people a day with what I know? So more recently, we have been building various solutions and uh, using the technology that is currently available and creating newer solutions to be able to give more people access, okay? Uh, to a more holistic uh, view or more holistic access to, to good care. We are never going to have enough doctors, you're never going to have enough hospitals, you're never going to have enough nurses to be able to look after everybody on our planet. So uh, these days I spend more time teaching, I spend more time talking, I spend more time designing uh, various solutions and trying to get it into a digital space that allows us to access as many people as possible to at least be able to give them access uh, to some form of um, support or answer to the questions that they have in their minds.
0: Right. Thank you so much, Doc. I can't thank you enough actually for for your time and your knowledge. And I'm sure there's so much more that we didn't even touch on that you would like to share with the world as you've said now and we'll definitely do this again and hopefully reach as many people as we can with this so thank you very much
1: thank you very much nick it's been awesome chatting to you thanks thank you cool